welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. This week's guest is Rab Allen. Rab is the guitarist of Glasgow band Las Vegas. We spoke about his early life growing up in the East End of Glasgow, how he got into music, Las Vegas' career involving Carol Barat and Alan McGee, amongst other people. We also touched on why Rab decided to go back to university to do a PhD. And at the end of the podcast, Rab chose his four heroes to come for dinner. Hope you'll enjoy this episode and I'll be back again soon with another one. Thanks. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Rab. Um, Obviously, yeah, from Glasgow band, Las Vegas. Could you just maybe start, just tell us what, what life was like growing up, where you grew up, and um, how you kind of came to get into music and stuff like that? So uh, I grew up in Shettleson, in the east end of Glasgow, mm-hmm. um, uh, with my mum and my brother and my sister. Um, it was quite, I don't want to say it was like poverty, but it was like, it was a really working class, mm-hmm. like, you know, like didn't really have much. So it was like family was, was quite important and stuff. Um, and then my mum used to always listen to like White Snake and the Eagles and she loved Simply Red and all that kind of music. And I always used to like, like music, but it was always on the periphery of other things that I was interested in growing up. Um, and then it was one day Oasis were on top of the pops and I heard it in the background. And I was just like, what is that? Like, what is that sound? Yeah. Um, and then that's when everything kind of changed and it, things kind of redirected towards towards music for me. I think I must have been about, that was 1996, 97, so I was about 13, 14. And then, through, then, then I, I was like, right, I, I want a guitar. So she got me a guitar off like a friend that we had. Um, and it took me about six months to realise that I was left-handed, which meant I'd been trying to play it upside down. Nobody told me. So <laughs> that means I, I can actually play guitar left-handed and right-handed now. Right. Luckily. Um, yeah. So, uh, and yeah, so that, and then that's it. And I just started playing guitar. And then that's, that's kind of how that started for me, I mm-hmm. guess. Was James local to you as well? <laughs> Yeah, so like my mum and his mum are twin sisters, so right. we always kind of grew up. Um, like if my mum was pissed off with me, I'd get shipped to James's house. Right. If James's mum was pissed off with James, James would come and stay with me. That that was kind of like the respite for the two of them. Um, but he was obviously like football. He's a professional football player and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he, his thing was quite similar to mine's in that we started playing guitar, but we were quite embarrassed to tell any, anybody or tell each other mm-hmm. because playing musical instruments at that time wasn't very cool. It's not like something you would want to kind of make a big thing about. Or I didn't think it was anyway, kind of where we grew up. And I think it was maybe my mum said to his mum, oh, he's playing guitar, or he's playing guitar as well. <laughs> and that's how that started there. It was just, it was like a pure coincidence thing that was just, yeah, just just seemed to happen. Right. And he, so, yeah, James, yeah, James can't play with, with guitar. He's awful. <laughs> so he's causing it. It just, it was like a natural thing. I say he's awful, he's really good, but just in his own way, he's got his own style. Um, mm-hmm. And so he was really good at that thing. I was I was a little bit better at playing lead guitar, so it was just a bit, yeah, and it just kind of worked. So there was no other no, no other bands then before Las Vegas? No. No. 
Um, so how did James's football kind of work into the band? Was he was he starting to kind of play? Was honest, he starting to play together while he was still no. playing football? I mean, what was happening was I think a football player that's got long hair and plays guitar, they thought he was like taking drugs mm-hmm. at some of these clubs. You know, they just didn't seem to grasp that. And I think that the music thing started becoming an issue because he would miss games and say he was unwell <laughs> to mm-hmm. do gigs or like to go to tea in the park. But then there would be like a photograph of him in the paper <laughs> and the guy would be like, I thought you were unwell, do you know, that kind of thing. So... It kind of, mm-hmm. funnily enough, the, the football thing from came ahead. We were playing in King Tut's, um, and Alan McGee came to see us with Carol Barrett. Mm-hmm. And, that, and so b- before the gig, James got fired from the football team. That was his last ever football team. I can't remember which team it was. Mm-hmm. And that same night, like then like 10 minutes later, we played in Alan McGee saws and Carol was there. And that's yeah. when everything started to change for us. Well, well, we're quite a, like lucky band, I think, that things always seem to fall into place. Yeah. At the right time, you know. Mm-hmm. So, going back, I'm going to touch on Carol Brat and Al McGee and things like that, but yeah. just um, playing live, obviously, in, in Glasgow when you were coming through, do you think you were part of the scene? Because, obviously, there was, like, running about then, there was Apple Scruffs and High Five Alive. I used to mm. go and see their bands, um, yeah. and I can mind coming and seeing you at the the Barfly, I think. My mate got me tickets for that. I'd never heard these and you blew me away that night. But do you think at that point you were part of a scene or do you think you kind of stood out a bit? I think that, I think there was a scene of bands, but I don't think we were a part of it. But I don't think that was a choice. I think it was just that we were doing our own thing at that point. Um, Especially in Glasgow, like a lot of people in Glasgow, I think they thought it was a bit of a joke, James doing the accent thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody really got it. I don't think there was many bands really doing like a Glaswegian accent at that point. Um, and we had started just touring up and down the UK. We bought a transit van, put a mattress in the back, and we were, we all, we'd all quit our jobs and we were just driving up and down and doing like crappy little gigs. So we were never really only in Glasgow enough to be a part of something, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the Apple Scruffs is one of my favourite other Scottish bands. Like I'm still really good mates with Johnny. Yeah, um, we had him out on tour just before lockdown and stuff. And like he's he's just such a talent. You know? mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of good bands at that point. But um, yeah, I don't think we were a part of any scene. Which is, I guess, that's a good thing and a bad thing. I guess, yeah. Well, that's what I thought. Like when I seen you at the Barfly that night, I thought this is like completely different from anything that I'd seen at the time. Um, and that's always stuck in my memory. Going forward then, so obviously King Tuts and you met Carol Barat and Al McGee. Yeah. Um, the thing with Carol Barat, obviously this was kind of when Libertines were kind of splitting up. Yeah. And um, you were coming out and The View was kind of, you kind of came out around about the same time. Obviously, yeah. Pete Doherty was kind of champion. The view, mm-hmm. obviously, that's how the Carol Barat we used. Do you, do you think that was kind of was that just coincidence, or was there a bit of right? I'm going to take a Scottish band, and we're, I'm going to take this one. Do you think there was any we, kind of competition? We I've never thought of it like that before, and that's quite funny because I think the view was maybe like a, a year before us, mm-hmm. 
Um, and then the, the, the Carol thing was quite funny because Carol was recording the first Dirty Pretty Things album in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was there with Alan because Alan was managing him at the time. Um, so he had basically just been there and he just fell in love with James, totally loved James. And they two are like best mates even now. Like they're still best mates. It's not even about a music thing. It's just because they're like they got on so well. And yeah. Carl messaged me about Jamesy Stag doing all that and what's happening, and it's uh, so it's like it's the the the, the brothers. So mm-hmm. although I, although Carol does like the music, it does there's a much deeper thing there, like a, a much deeper friendship. Um. Yeah, which is strange in the whole Alan kind of link up thing as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, a, it's, it's just been a good a good friendship for us. Hmm. It's just it's just funny because I was I was right into the view as well and kinda it's something that's never seemed to be brought up, but I kinda always seen it and thought that that's odd that kinda one likes this band and one likes that band, kinda it's, it just seemed a bit yeah. funny. I, I swear I've, I've, I've never thought that. <laughs> um, what did you what sort of relationship? Did you have with you? Did you have any sort of relationship with him? Because you were both kind of, as I say, at the same time, kind of completely different. Yeah, I mean, the, the first time I met them was in was at Benicastle in two thousand and must have been two thousand and nine, and I'd had a fight with my girlfriend at the time, and I'd let I I was leaving the hotel, and Kyle was in the elevator, mm-hmm. and I didn't recognise him. And then right. he was pure, he was pure pissed off with me. And uh, <laughs> he said to somebody, he was pissed off. And I went up to him, I was like, oh, mate, I was so sorry. I was like, I just had a massive fight with the missus. I wasn't being like disrespectful or anything. And uh, ever since then, we've just been totally cool. Right. Um, I bump, like bump into him every once in a while. I think, do you know what? I think the, I think Kyle is like a really underrated songwriter. To be honest, not even just with a view, but on his own with solo stuff. I think his new solo yeah. albums kind of going that he's. It's like a, there's a much deeper thing there. Um, yeah, I love him. He's, he's, he's some guy. So, obviously recording the, the first album in New York. Yep. How did that so come about? Is that the record label that's decided he's a good New York? No, so what happened is we... Um, we got a, we were rehearsing one night and we were travelling home. James got a phone call on his phone and it was Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rick's like, oh, how are you doing? This is Rick Rubin. And James was like, fuck off, and hung up the phone. James thought it was a joke. So Rick Rubin phones back. He's like, look, it's really Rick Rubin. And basically, I don't know how, but Rick Rubin had got a hold of the demos from the first album and was trying to get us to sign to Columbia. So he is really good friends with this guy, Rich Costey, who's the guy that ended up doing the first album. Um, and he was like, I really think you should think about working with this guy. I think he would be really good for your sound. So, like... Four people for the East End of Glasgow who get told you can go anywhere in the world and record. Mm. We were just like, let's go to New York. So Rich was based in New York. So it was just like, I think from signing the deal, we were in New York like two weeks later recording. It was like everything was like really quick. Yeah. So, um, but that was just like amazing. Like I'd, I'd never left Scotland before, I don't think, you know, and then, no. well, like I'd been to like Spain and did things like that, like on holidays, but to like, just go to like America for like three months or four months was just like incredible. So. And how, how did you deal with that? Were you homesick or then? No, no, really, because I had so much money in the bank that it was like, I'd never, I'd never had that much money before. So everything was like new and exciting. And I was with my best mates. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, 
that kind of happened a wee bit later, I guess. Things went a wee bit darker and that it was things get a bit strange. But at that time, everything was just so new and exciting, and you know, you could just yeah. go drinking and partying and recording. It was just so much fun. Well, it, it turned into an amazing album. Got to number two, done it in the, the charts. Looking on the producers, obviously, you've Rich Costey in the first one and Flood for the second one, but James has yeah. produced all the albums as well alongside yeah. the two, and then the last two on his own. So how much of an undertaking is that producing as well as, as being a recording artist? How does he cope with that? I think because he takes such a, a role in the development of the songs, it's not just like some songwriters will do like I say an acoustic demo, give it to the band and everyone does a thing. James always does a demo of the song to give to the band as like a right. So here's here's the starting point for each ease. Mm-hmm. Um so even with the early demos that we put out, he was producing all of that stuff as well because he knew exactly how he wanted like each instru- like instrument to sound. There was no room for uh, maneuver. So it was difficult when we were recording with Rich because Rich would have specific ideas and James would have specific ideas and they would mm-hmm. kind of butt heads. But I think there was like a, a level of respect there that Sometimes one would win, sometimes the other one would win. Right. But it always, everything turned out for the best. And it was the same with Flood as well. Like, you don't work with Depeche Mode and you two and have nothing to give. You know, you're going to have some, some good stuff there. Um, and that's, that's just the way it was. When it came to the third record, I think at that point we were just like, we, we were pretty sure about what we were doing. And then with the last record, because James recorded it, engineered it, did everything himself. Mm. They just didn't need anyone else. Yeah, well, because that's because you strike us as kind of a, a band that's kind of comfortable with how you are, how you sound, and kind of you're not going to compromise. Obviously, is it pretty much the same with the artwork? Because I heard James on a another podcast and he was going on about the the artwork for the first album as well, and it was like he had a big argument with the, the record company with that, didn't he? I, I, I was on that phone call. Right. And it's one of the most cringy things I've ever been involved in in my life, to be honest. And it was like, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be rude about all these people, but see, most of the people that work for record companies, they're fucking idiots, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're bluffers, and they don't really know what they're doing. And see if you're going to start questioning somebody like James, who, so I think because James spoke with a certain accent, came from a certain place, people thought maybe he wasn't as educated as what he actually is. Mm-hmm. But James is really clever and he researches things and he knows the things that he talks about because he, sometimes I think you need to prove yourself a wee bit more when you come from like a specific background. So when people start questioning, well, James, you know, you're not allowed to do that because of this. And then James goes, well, actually, by this law, you're allowed to do this. <laughs> then people are baffled. They're like, oh, no. Oh no, and it's like, well, well, you know, we still need to look at that. And James is like, I've already looked in there. I've spoke to everybody. We're allowed to do this. People are like, then their backs are against the wall because that person doesn't know what they expected them to be. Do you know what I mean? And, and James has always been like that. Like he's always did the artwork. He's always come up with ideas for the videos. He's always did all these different things. And I think people are quite surprised about that. And that's why sometimes things are more difficult because when you when you've got your hand in everything, not just the writing the songs, but the recording the songs, the artwork, the videos, do you know what I mean? It, things yeah. just take long. So, um, but yeah, that that phone call was. I think basically the way the phone call was that they want they had sent us over some artwork, 
and it was pure like silly things like if they wanted to put a photo of Elvis on the front cover of the album mm-hmm. it was just like pure eye because we sounded a little bit maybe like a 50s sound with the reverb and James was just getting pissed off and ended up saying look my mum could do better, better work than this like you're supposed yeah. to be on Sony Records what the fuck is going on here if you're going to send me something at least send me something good no something just ironic and silly like a headshot of Elvis it's like what's going on and they were I think they were quite taken aback but they never did that again, so. So, the next album, Euphoric Heartbreak, that yeah. came, in at, came in at number 10, and it was top of the charts in Sweden. Yes. Which, um, you've had you've got a Swedish drummer as well, haven't you? Or you had a Swedish drummer at the time. Yeah. Um, and pretty much wherever I've looked, you seem to be, like, Sweden, Scandinavia, you seem to be massive, they seem to take to you. Yeah, why do you think that? I actually think that's just because of the drummer, or no? Because we were massive in Sweden before we got you on in, and to be honest, I can't, I can't even tell you why. It's sometimes I think music just connects in a place at a certain point in time, and that's just what happened with, with that record. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the thing is, it's it's a, we're bigger in like Sweden and Scandinavia than we are in Scotland. Which is like weird, but it's cool because it means you get a wee holiday to Sweden every couple of years to go and do some festivals and mm-hmm. do some nice big gigs and stuff. But um, we're a strange band, and because that first album is so big, like worldwide, we can go anywhere in the world and play to like three, four, five hundred people. Like anywhere, we can do that anywhere in the world. Right. So, so we're, we're just really lucky that way. Whereas some bands like are just like more UK based, or they'll do a couple of things, but like. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm just so grateful for that, that, that we're able to do that off the back of the first album. Because mm-hmm. yeah. Amy McDonald, I listened to something with, with, with her the other day, and she's kind of, I think it's kind of similar with her in Germany. Yeah, she's Seems massive, be, like unbelievable the size she is. Like, and it's not, I think there's a few countries in, like in that, like kind of Northern Europe, where she's massive, and like we're talking like arenas and stadiums. Mm. Like, yeah, it's bizarre. Aye, uh, it's bizarre, isn't it? Um, so, what about the setting down? Because, I, I mean, I've heard interviews, obviously, you, you've not really done so many interviews, it's usually James. I'm pretty sure I've heard kind of stuff coming out that he, he wasn't as happy with the setting album. But I kind of, I think that's the best album out of your, your four. So what, what did you kind of... Thank you. So I, I think it's I think it's the best at the four. I think it's I think the songs are the best on it. I think there was just loads of like there, there was loads of like mad stuff going on. So with the second record, I think that because we changed our sound so much from the first record, people just and he came out like dressed in white. I think that was quite a departure for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So people didn't really know how to deal with that to start with. Then he's singing songs about homosexuality and mad stuff. That was another thing I think people couldn't really deal with. And also, I think Sony Records, it was Columbia, we were on Columbia Records, mm-hmm. but basically just like, they like they they dropped us the week the record came out. Mm-hmm. Even though it went, I meant to, like, to get a top 10 record. Yeah. But they, they basically, they, they just couldn't really control us. Like, we would just call them out and everything. And it was in our contract that we had final say on everything. 
Right. Every, every single thing. Like, mind you, we had to go our, our way and they, they just weren't happy. And it was never going to end well because of that. Um, but yeah, so, the, so it was all of those things. Like, they basically stopped promoting the record the week it came out. And and so and and then that that was that. So that's kind of how the second one because I like I I genuinely think it's get the best songs. It just it didn't connect as well with people. Mm-hmm. Than, than well, the first one did. I don't I don't think I came to it straight away. I can mind people saying that like the first single, "The World Is Yours," um, people were saying, "Oh, it sounds crap because he's he he sounds like he's singing underwater," um, stuff like that. So I kind of. I was maybe like two or three months before I bothered listening to the album and then kind of once I listened to it, I thought, that's amazing. And that, that, that's my, obviously the first album is full of tunes, mm. but the second album, I, I like something different. I like a band to kind of change. So that's always been my, my go-to Las Vegas record. Obviously the third album, he, he kind of, James is producing it himself. He brought it out with the, he done the, the gig in the, the church. Yeah. Um, so, again, was that James? Was, is this all kind of James's ideas of how it's going to be marketed and things like that? I think the thing is that we, we never really were in a band to try and be successful. We were just in a band to be creative and play music. Yeah, which so is the right reason. Yeah, and so we've never really chased like fame or money or like, you know how like people write songs sometimes thinking this is going to be big or this is going to make us like, I mean, we if you look at the singles that we've put out since we've been chosen with the second record, uh, so second kind of third record onwards, it's all been songs. It's like piano songs and stuff that, I mean, the most recent record we put out, Shake the Cage, which mm-hmm. is like, nobody would put that out. There's other songs in the album that are more commercial that we could put out, but that's not really what it's about. It's just about kind of being creative and trying to get what it is that we've made across. Yeah. Um, but I see people, I see, I see other bands, they kind of, I think people inadvertently kind of sell their souls a wee bit sometimes and do things because they think they should and then find it quite hard to live with. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, I get and, that. And, uh, and I, I, like, I sleep really easy at night knowing that there's decisions we could have made that we didn't based on like creativity and just a wee bit of integrity as well. Like no totally selling my, myself short. Yeah. You know I mean, and the rest of the band. And so that's why things like having a successful album or whatever has never really been what I've wanted. It's just to be creative and express what the band is and you're saying about the band having a sound and stuff and mm-hmm. yeah yeah so obviously that one playing in the church just going back I was looking um you've played like hundreds of different prisons as well yeah um, I don't know I, I didn't count but it looked like it might be more prisons you've played in than Johnny Cash um, <laughs> or even Pete Doherty he's done a few as well um yeah. So what's the, what do you think they're thinking as with that? So our manager, Denise, uh, used to work in social work um, along with Geraldine. Mm-hmm. And they had people that were burning out of prisons and stuff. And I think the thing is music has got the ability to change people and to, to have a positive impact on people's lives. 
and I don't think anybody's ever that far gone that they can't be helped. Like I think there's always, you know, mm-hmm. and I know people disagree with that and whatever, but that, and that, so that's kind of that was we just thought let's go in and play some of these songs to some people and see what happens. And this this was before with a record deal. This is before we had any fans. We were mm-hmm. going in and doing this. Um, we, we did Berlin, we did a few in Edinburgh, um, and then we did Pullman, Young Offenders, mm-hmm. and then what? Then once we did the record and first record and did all the touring, we came back to Pullman and played again. Um, and that time the warden was there with his whole family, all proud. After the first time, he didn't care and he never turned up the first time. And, uh, but it, it was good, and it, and it was. And then after that, a few of those kids from Pullman came out and started bands. That's brilliant. And we'd get touches and say, you know, that that made us want to start bands. And it's like that's that's really all you can all you can do. It's like you you affect yeah. one person and that's that's you know, that's good that's good enough for us. That's absolutely amazing. I didn't I'd never heard that before. That's brilliant, man. Um so obviously the new album is coming out. Obviously delayed with COVID and stuff like that, and you were doing ten fan anniversary gigs for the the first album. Yeah, that was two thousand. You made them, yeah. Uh-huh. And that's when you were doing the, the kind of acoustic shows, and you had Johnny Skinner at these. Yep. So, what do you think the how, how do you think it went doing the acoustic gigs? Did you enjoy that? The acoustic gigs are some of the most enjoyable ones that I've done, to be yeah. honest. And I think it's because Sometimes when you do these big gigs and everything's dead loud and everything's, you kind of miss the kind of sentiments and the songs and, and the kind of important aspects of them. So when everything's stripped away, you're kind of hearing James is most like bare and honest. I think that's kind of the thing that people want. Sometimes they want to get that kind of connection, which is, mm. which is easy to get across. So yeah, the gigs were amazing. I, mean, I think the, the, the two that we did first was in Glasgow, the Clutter. And we, we, we hadn't really grasped how to do the gigs yet. So those were probably the least best, although they were still really good. But I think it was once we started, we did a couple in Edinburgh and we did up and down England. And they started to get really, really good towards the end. Um, and it was a good chance for us to play some of the new songs for people right. as well. So, um, yeah, and we, we got to see Johnny play every night, which was amazing. Well, that, that this is a hang like so, because um, Johnny's not done anything for years and years. I messaged him two or three times a year saying what you're doing. So I'm trying to get him on the podcast. He says he's going to come on next year. But like I seen a video, I was watching a video last night and it was a um, heartbreaker where and Johnny came up and sang at least. And I kind of, there's a thought crossed my mind that would there ever be a chance of Johnny becoming part of Las Vegas? Because he kind of, I don't know what it is, he kind of suits the rest of the band. I think if anybody was ever going to join the band, it would be Johnny. He's the only person, mm. I think, kind of, because it's not just like a look thing or whatever. Jo- like Johnny is, Johnny's cut for the same thing that we are and how he thinks about music and what he's trying to achieve. It's it's the same, it's the same fit. Yeah. And like we've, we've got him up to do songs before, but he's come up and did Daddy's Gommies at festivals before and stuff. And he's mm-hmm. just, he's like, he's one in a million. He's just like such a special, special guy. Um, and I love the Apple Scruffs, but like even the, the newer stuff that he's been doing, it's just incredible. Yeah. It's, you, you can't let him go kind of, like you can't be missed. People need to see him. He needs to kind of 
be on the same kind of level as yourselves. They kind yep. of just go undiscovered. Uh, so, obviously, the, so Godspeed came out um, mm-hmm. this year, April. How do you think things have went with that? How, what, what do you think the reception's been? Everybody seems to like it. I think it's just the fact that we've not really been able to do anything to promote it. There's been no shows. Yeah. The thing is, we started recording this album six years ago, maybe more than that. So we just want to get out. Like James is working on new stuff already. So it's right. like, cause it's never like this album's going to be the big one. It's just like, let's just make music, put it out, do some shows, do the next album. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I, that sounds a bit cynical, but it's just, that's just the reality of how music is now. It's not, it's not like the way it was where you bring out an album and you think this could be the biggest album. And it's like, it's not like that. So yeah. for any band, you know, so it's like, we don't, well, I'll speak for myself. When, when we put an album out, I don't expect anything to happen because I know how the music industry works. Mm-hmm. I just look forward to spending some time with the boys, playing some gigs, uh, getting some time away for the wife, and getting really drunk on tour. Yeah, and that, that's that's like the best. That's the best you can hope for, you know. And 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 that that makes me happy. So, and what what gigs have you got coming up? Have you got like a a proper tour coming up? So we. So this year we've got maybe five, six or seven gigs. Most of them are festivals. So we're doing, um, we're playing in Sunderland this Saturday as a warm up. Then Sunday we're doing Portsmouth Victorious Festival. Mm-hmm. And then the weekend after we're doing um, a new festival. That's that one, Dalkeith, isn't it? Yeah, that looks amazing. So it's Callum Trainer. He's thrown it together in like three weeks. It is mm-hmm. unbelievable what he's actually done. So it's us. The Sherlock's, uh, Johnny, Kyle from the View, uh, Nova, and some other people, and it just—it's just, just going to be such a great day. I mean, it's—it's it's a really small festival; it's like a thousand people, mm-hmm. but it's just going to be such a such a great a great wee event. Um, and then we're doing Playground Festival two weeks after that, and then we're doing another festival in England the day after that. And we've got a few more things. The next year we're doing a three-week tour of the UK, and we had a big European tour booked. But because they haven't fixed the visa touring issues yet, we've just we've put it on hold because we'd probably end up losing money. Right. Which we just can't afford. I don't mind touring and breaking even, but I'm not going to tour and lose money on something. It's just pointless. So yeah. until they fix it or the, the Brexit bullshit, then that's just getting put on hold. So what's the scrap we're doing? Because obviously, you know, we're like 10, like 10 plus years down the line for when you, you first started. So... Yeah. Do you still look forward to touring? Are you still as wild as you, you were at the start? Uh, so touring at the start was basically we just had like a party for like about five or six years. That's really what happened. It was just mm-hmm. a constant party on tour. Every night it was like the gig was good, but where's the party? <laughs> and that's just <laughs> what it was all the time. And it was great. And I love doing that, but then like life changes and things need to change and you can adapt. So I'd say James has probably calmed down the most. And then me and Paul still kind of like to have a good time, but within reason. Mm. Um, like I, I keep really fit and healthy now. So like I go running every day, whatever city we're in. Yeah, so that I can't get up like, my Facebook every day. I see you at your runs. Yeah. So I can't like I can't I can't get too like drunk or too too mad it because like I know that I'm going to do that the next day. So that probably keeps me on like a bit an even, an even uh, even keel. 
But uh, we still have a really good time. Yeah, I think you need to because we're in such a fortunate position that, you know, yeah. I, see, I see bands and I've seen bands in years who go on tour and play Monopoly at night and stuff. And I'm just like, you're not living your best life. <laughs> you're, that, no, you're no having, you know. Is that Kenzie like, Leon? Kenzie Leon? No, they played ping pong. <laughs> um, White Lies, White Lies played Monopoly after gigs, and it was just like, boys, come on, come on, have a, come on, have a bump or something. No, 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 we're gonna go to bed soon. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like, well, I put up Bono still has a good time. Right. Bono has a good time. Bono's got like a, I think it's like a four days off, three days on rule. So he'll, he'll like drunk, get drunk, do whatever he does for three days. Then he'll have four days off, and three days on, and four days off. Right. So it's like everybody finds their, their, their feet because, like, I couldn't see the way I parted at the start. I couldn't still be doing that just now. Mm. You know, you, you need to find what works for you. So, so no, no more um, Sharpies with Paul, the U2 gag. <laughs> I've heard that story as well. We'll nobody having any we stories don't. like that anymore. Paul gets given a sharpie at the end of the gig when we go to the merch desk and it gets taken straight back off him <laughs> because he does like to draw things. So yeah, that was uh, that was just one of the best things that's ever happened in my life, to be honest. So yeah. Yeah. One of the funniest as well. Yeah, can you tell it just so that the, the listeners know what, what I'm talking about? So we were telling me you two and um it was, we did like uh, Hamden and Glasgow and Wembley and England and it was like four big, four big stadiums we did. So when they put us in the dressing room in, in Wembley, they had all the England players on the walls on these big massive prints, but they put covers over them like curtains. So Paul decided to start drawing things on the prints. And some of the, some of it was like quite, I mean, it was all really funny. It was all really funny. So, um, he would draw like guys willies coming at the bottoms of their shorts and all that. It was just, I mean, it was, it, it, it was good. So what happened is we did, we did the gig, we left, we totally forgot all about it. And then our management got a phone call saying, look, these photos have been, um, you know, they've been drawn on and we think it was Las Vegas. And our manager was like, are you sure it was them? Because Elbow had supported the night before and they mm. had the same dressing room. So I'm sorry, Elbow, if you get the blame right. So what happened was our manager said, so are you sure? And the, the guy said, well, 99% sure. And our manager said, so there's a 1% chance <laughs> it wasn't Las Vegas. And he, pure, he fought and fought and fought. And basically, it ended up costing us 25 grand. We had to pay 25 grand to get the, get the... It was like 12 and a half grand to get the pictures cleaned and fixed. And we had to donate 12 and a half grand to the Wembley charity, something. So it was like the fee for a full gig. Um, but do you know what? It was the best, best 25 grand I've ever spent. <laughs> to be honest, so like, I, I don't, I don't regret it. I don't think I know Paul doesn't. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, See, so, so just going back to like the management then. Uh, obviously, Denise is your cousin, and James's sister. She's part of the management, aren't she? Yeah. So how does that work? Do you yeah. um, do you think that's better having somebody like that in charge of you? I think I think it, there's there's positives and negatives, and it def, the positives outweigh the negatives. But then you can be a lot more honest with people and say you're being a pure asshole. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Or like if you're sitting around and having Christmas dinner and you start fighting with people about work things, 
which uh, it just it happens sometimes. But I think over, but it's, it's, it's James's sister and James's stepdad that manages the band. Right. Then Alan McGee came on and he started managing as well for this record. So, but I think the thing is that Dean and Denise have got different strengths. So that's kind of how it worked in the first place. They'd never managed a band. They came from totally different backgrounds. But mm-hmm. it was just the way it is. As we always seem to pick up people who have never did that job because we like them as people. But Dean and Denise just totally like flourished. Like right. as soon as they started managing the band and when it came to negotiating with record companies and stuff, Denise is vicious. Denise is like, she's terrifying. But she's no, like a mum. No she's, way. She's, she has, she's been on emails I've dealt with. Telling you, she is, a, she's a pure animal, right? <laughs> but this is, this is the one you need to watch out for. See the ones that are really nice, but see as soon as you do something, she yeah. just but that, that I think you need that with a manager. You need somebody that's like that's really approachable, but just won't take any bullshit. Um, and that's that's the way she is. I mean, we're all quite scared of her, mm. <laughs> and she's family. So, yeah, yeah. So, what what else is she doing? Is she managing any other bands, or is it just solely yourself? She might. It was just us for ages, um, and then she started managing a band called Freakwave. Mm-hmm. They're really good. So they're in recording just now. Um, she's managing two other artists, a girl called Lamaya and a girl called Cherry. Um, and she's just kind of developing them just now and getting them any songwriting and, and learning how to do that kind of thing. But Freak Wave, I think we'll probably be releasing music this year. Um, right. And the, the singer is just a star. She's like one of the most gorgeous girls I've all seen. She can sing like fuck, she plays guitar. She just looks incredible. Like. I think even with it playing music, the band just looked quite special. So I think straight away. Yeah. And she, she writes really good songs. So. I'll have a wee look at it for her. Obviously, one of the big things that I've, I've heard on a couple of other podcasts as well is that along with the music, you're also been back at uni. Uh, yeah. So how did that come about? Why did you initially go to uni? And why have you stayed so long? So I always felt like a wee bit daft. So mm-hmm. like I, I was clever at school, but I never really applied myself. As soon as I picked up a guitar, everything else went to shit. Mm-hmm. So I did the music thing for so long, but I'd never actually like achieved anything for myself. I'd always did it as part of a band. So when we took a break after the third album, I was just getting drunk all the time and just basically being a lazy, a lazy git and my my girlfriend at the time was like, look, you need to do something. You need, like, because you're just sitting and mm-hmm. sitting up all night and sleeping all day and stuff. And she was like, you always wanted to get a degree. Why don't you go back to uni? So I ended up going back to uni for one year. Loved it. Did another year, did another year. And uh, now I'm doing a PhD. Which and it's is... going to be Dr. Rabson. Yeah. Dr. Rab, believe that. <laughs> and so, um, are you going to get people to, like, they'll need to call you that then? You're going to, on stage, you know what? James will need to refer he, to you as Dr. Rab. He refers to me as loads of different names already, so <laughs> I'm, sure, I, I'm sure he can call me whatever he wants. Um, I, I, it's, it's quite a mad one, but yeah, it's, it, it's the, you know what, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's, it's, it's good. And my wife's pregnant, so it's good because I'm at home just now and I'm going to be at home for the baby because I'm doing a PhD and I can work mm-hmm. from home and 
So that's, like I said to you about life always working a certain way and things always working out for each other. That's just another one of those things. So, yeah. Um, and then obviously I can go and do gigs whenever I want because mm -hmm. I'm in peace. So it's like everything just works out really well. So, and, uh, so what is it that you're, what is the, the PhD you're doing? What, what is it on? So it is in, it's like a partnership with the Scottish Music Industry Association who put on the Say Award each year. And basically, they wanted somebody to map and measure the Scottish music industry to kind of see how it works, to see where the value is, and to see if there was any areas that could be um, made better mm -hmm. uh, to generate more value. Um, so, putting that really in a, like a really simple terms, I'm really seeing how much money the industry earns in Scotland, how much yeah. you know generated. Then we're going to try and go to government and lobby to try and get more investment for music to say, you know, this is what it makes. But if you invested in these areas, it would mm -hmm. make a lot more for the economy. Which is quite kind of prevalent in the way COVID and everything that's happened and the, the, the lack of funding that music's received. Do you know what? It is, the COVID thing came at a time and it made the project really uncertain at one point and then it was like do you know what this is probably going to highlight some of the things that's wrong with the industry you know to do with like streaming and um people's incomes just not really being enough for them to live on as it is when music is normal yeah so um yeah i mean it's i don't want to say it's been it's it's been a good thing for the project but it's obviously not a good thing for everyone else but it's just good everything's starting to open back up again you know like people are actually starting to do gigs that's like bizarre so yeah so like i can actually start doing some proper research mm -hmm. um but i've got like a, i've done about a year and a half now and i've got about a year and a half two years left so, right and do you think you'll manage to kind of juggle the band and the baby and the phd how will all that work together no i'm absolutely shit myself because like it's just going to be i, I mean life is hard for everybody but when you start throwing all these other obstacles in, do you know what I mean? And it's like when I go and do the band, then my mind needs to be totally on the band. And when I'm doing the PhD, my mind needs to be totally. So it's like really hard to juggle these things. But um, do you know what? I just need to do it. Do you know, yeah. do you know that? It's like, and I think that's like going back to the, the East End, the Glasgow working class thing. You just put your head down and go on with it. It's just, you know, it's yeah. life. Life's so much harder for a lot of other people so like me sitting complaining going oh this is really hard nah loads of other people have got it a lot harder right right so um we'll get you on maybe for a wee update once you've once you've talked to rab allen um so i'll not i'll not keep you too long obviously the last no, no. bit of the the show is uh obviously because it's time for heroes you pick four heroes to come for for dinner and then yeah. You need to tell us what you're going to make them as well if you're a good cooker. No? Uh, so no, I'm, a, I'm a great cook actually. I used to be terrible, but my wife taught me how to cook. Right. <laughs> so, um, right. So I wrote a real list. So two of them we've already mentioned, but I'm, uh -huh. I'll, I'll, so the first one is No Gallagher mm -hmm. because that was the whole reason I started playing guitar. Right. So if there was no No or No Oasis, I don't even know if I would have been playing the guitar. Some mm -hmm. people would probably say that's a good thing, <laughs> but um, he would be the first one. And then, and then we ended up touring with Oasis. We were on tour with them when they broke up, mm -hmm. and that was just like an amazing experience. And I, I was just so nervous. Like I never really actually spoke to him that much. I spoke to Liam a lot more, 
Because right. I was just so nervous to talk to Noel. Then, which um, is not me, so yeah. What what what's it like kind of touring a band like that? Then do you get a lot of time with the band, or is it quite kind of distant? I, I mean, every band that we toured with was different. So like, we did like Kings of Leon, we did U two, we did Oasis, we did Muse, and the the dynamic was kind of different with all of them. But with Oasis, Liam would come in the dressing room every day, sit yeah. down, have a cup of tea, and ask how we were getting on. Every single day. That's that's magic. Like, that reminds me of him. Even, even I was like, what the fuck's going on here? So and he would basically be like, do you need anything? You got enough booze? Is everybody looking after you? Like, you, bands don't need to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? At any level. So he was the only one to do that. So like, that's why I'll always totally respect Liam. I love the guy and he's amazing. And people don't know he's a big pussycat. People think he's all, oh, but he's not. He's like a yeah. lovely, lovely sweet guy. But no, it's still for me like the the guy that made me get to where I am in terms of inspiring me to do that. So, mm-hmm. so that's that, that that's why I picked no. Um, so my second hero would be McGee because he's just he's just. Have you ever met Alan? No, I'm trying to get him on this podcast as well, but he's murdered he, like a hoodie. He is the maddest guy I've ever met. The mm-hmm. maddest guy I've ever met, right? And it's like, what happened was when I was doing my, like, I, so I, I I call him Uncle Alan. Alan's just always been there in the background, kind of saying, you should do this, try this, da 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 da. He's just such a such a cool guy. So when I was doing, uh, when I went back to uni, I interviewed him for my dissertation. And it was at that point, he was like, it was happening with the band. And I was like, oh, you know, James is living in Sweden just now and we're doing different things. And he was like, I want to manage a band get your shit sorted and I'll come back and I'll help you. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't really know. And I told James and James was like, right, boom, let's do it. And Alan's just kind of got that thing with people where, and it's the same with Kyle. Like, I think he's been great for Kyle, managing yeah. Kyle. He's just kind of few moves and he knows what to do. And, he strikes me. Him. He strikes me as the type of guy, he's just, if he gets an idea, he'll be like, right, we're going to do this. Where most people would be like, like, the the downside of it, he just says, no, we'll do this and it'll be a success. And then it is. Yep, tunnel vision. Is, yeah. well, as soon as he's got something, he goes with it. But before before I ever met Alan, I'd read a lot of his books and I knew all his stories, like mad shit that he'd done. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't even remember most of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be asking him about stuff and he'd be like, are you sure that was me? And I was like, I, because I read it in the book. And he was just he was getting embarrassed <laughs> because of the stuff I was saying to him. And it was like... <laughs> um, <laughs> He's just, he's just such a cool guy, man. And I think I think we're really lucky that he's Scottish. Do you know what I mean? Like to have somebody like that. Yeah. That's what he did in, in Compass Scotland. So so he's my second hero. So my third hero, this is going to be controversial, right? Is Graham Soonis. So I'm a Rangers fan, and Paul's a Rangers fan. James is a Celtic fan. Mm-hmm. So I had, to, I had to pick something to do with, to do with Rangers because I, I know James would date if it was a Celtic thing. So <laughs> so I picked Graham Soonis. Because I like divisive people, people that cause that that kind of that, that, that are either loved or hated. And I think every single Rangers fan absolutely loves Sunis. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody else outside the Rangers absolutely despises the guy. You would think <laughs> that, wouldn't you? But I'm a Celtic fan and I love him. I love these kind of style. That's that's kind of the way I play football. I'm a dirty bastard. Um, <laughs> you know what? I was watching the videos earlier and I was just like, just stomping on people and everything. I was like, uh, 
you just you wouldn't get that anymore but he was so passionate and the moustache and everything and I was just like he's just like a pure legend mm-hmm. I think he seems, he seems to have softened a wee bit now he's but, brilliant on TV as well he's kind of him and Roy Keane are probably the, the best for just kind of speaking their mind and saying it how it is I know and I, it's like I, even even then when he went to Galatasaray and did all that stuff it was just like he was always device, the kind of divisive wherever he went and I, I like that I don't like people that are just like quite straight I, I like people that are flawed that's what I'm yeah. trying to say I like people that are flawed because that's real and um, and that's quite natural so I was trying to think of a fourth one and mm-hmm. I was really struggling because yeah so the fourth one I've picked is really different so I've picked Neil Young right because I've started getting really into Neil Young again so I used to love Neil Young mm-hmm. yeah, to the point where it was like quite unhealthy probably how much I loved the guy mm-hmm. and I went to see him in 2016 at the Hydro I always heard like he was he was he would either be amazing life or he would be crap life so I was mm-hmm. like what are we going to get but I'd looked at the set list and he was doing most of the Harvest album and I was just like, yeah. So I turned up and he came out with acoustic guitar harmonica and just started playing all these acoustic songs. And I was just like, it doesn't happen very often at gigs that I'm like blown away. And it's yeah. like, you're in a different place. You're in a different world. And that happened that night. And it was like, it was otherworldly what happened. And I've not really felt like that since. Mm. So would, I think, that been, would that have been around about the same time you played Glastonbury? Yeah, so I think, yeah, I'm sure it was because he, he was playing with that. It was like a band he had, but the band he had were like a proper band on their own. Yeah, um, and he was he came out and did like it was like Down by the River, like a 28 minute version of that and stuff. And it was Aye. just like, but it was all the hits he played. It was just one of the most special things I've all seen. So we were actually friends with. I don't. I think he still going out with Daryl Hannah, and we were at Daryl Hannah's one time. I think she knew him at the time, but they weren't going out. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish I'd known about that. Sorry, I divulged and I'm going to have it off. Um, but he, so he's on the list because I think as an artist, he is the thing that I would aspire to be that you don't make music for people. You make music for yourself. And if other people like it, that's good, you know. And I think he seems like quite, he's got a lot of integrity about him and he just doesn't, he doesn't give a fuck, I don't think. He doesn't care. And so I guess that's why I, I, I totally look up to him. And there's, there's loads of guys like him but I think the way he sings and stuff and the fact he's done it for so long, like... Yeah, that's an excellent choice. I'm pretty sure there was somebody else um, on the podcast, but Neil Young as well, I think it was uh, Chris Helm for the Seahorses. And uh, it was him. I, I didn't realise he was he was married to Daryl Hannah until he told me. You know, I, I don't know if they're married. I think they might be married now. I think they are. Uh, I think that's what they say. But which is like I'm, that's quite a, a weird pairing. Like Daryl's lovely, but um, I wouldn't have put them together. But yeah, yeah. So we you, we you cooking them since you're a good cook. Do you know what I do? I do really nice fish, really nice roast potatoes. Well, I think I'd probably be quite selfish and just do like a big massive mac and cheese, big <laughs> mac tray of mac and cheese. Yeah, maybe get a wee yeah, bit of haggis. Good. We 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 bit of haggis sprinkled on it. Make me hungry. <laughs> yeah, I've never done that. That sounds amazing. It's good. Yeah, I've had it I might do that for my wife. My wife's English. Yeah, she loves mac and cheese, but I've never done that. I might try yeah, that. Cook it, get it through it. It's it's banging. Brilliant. Brilliant. They're, they're all brilliant choices, Rab. 
So thank you very much for coming on. Um, no worries, thanks for having me, mate. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy.